Pushkin. Where do you see your career in 10 years? What are you doing now to help you get there? The sooner you start enhancing your skills, the sooner you'll be ready. That's why AARP has reskilling courses in a variety of categories like marketing and management to help your income live as long as you do. That's right. AARP has a bevy of free skill-building courses for you to choose from because the steps you choose to take today will help you love what you do in the future. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're really choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. Think of everything everybody in the United States buys in a year. All the food, all the clothes, insurance, education, housing, travel, iPhones, everything. Of all the stuff we buy, out of all the money we spend, around 20%, around one in five dollars, is spent on healthcare. This is extraordinary. It is completely out of line with what other people in other countries spend. It's about twice as much as what other rich countries spend relative to their GDPs on healthcare. And crucially, we in the US do not get better health outcomes. So we're spending lots of money without much to show for it. For a long time, people have looked at this problem and thought, What if instead of paying doctors and hospitals to treat us when we get sick, we could pay them to keep us healthy? Is there some way we could spend less on healthcare and get better results? I'm Jacob Goldstein, and this is What's Your Problem? My guest today is Farzad Mostashari. He's the co-founder and CEO of a healthcare company called Alidate. Farzad's problem is this. How can you pay doctors to keep us healthy rather than treating us after we get sick? People have been struggling to solve this problem for decades, but for a bunch of reasons you'll hear about on the show, Farzad and his fellow travelers may be the ones to finally solve it. Before he became an entrepreneur, Farzad went to medical school. But he told me that back in the mid-90s, when he was doing his clinical training, his residency in internal medicine, he started to question what he was learning and what he was not learning. I kept looking at stuff that was happening and being like, this doesn't make sense to me. Like, why? Like, you're telling, you're teaching me how to, you know, treat someone who's coming in here with difficulty breathing in the emergency room. I get that. Like, it's really important that that person get their treatment, their nebulizer, so they can breathe again. That's really, I get that. 
but why is this person coming in today? Why, why, uh -huh. why is it that all of a sudden we're seeing people coming in with, with breathing problems? Why, why is it that the people who tend to come in with breathing problems tend to be from these neighborhoods, not other neighborhoods? And it was those questions that were between medicine and public health and epidemiology that really grabbed me. So Farzad finished his residency and went into public health. And he had this, this trait that at the time was kind of a superpower. He was really into computers. So I, I came of age at, at a time when, in a way, you know, asking the question, can you use a computer for that, was, was like, uh, you know, unlocked a, a, lot of, a lot of value. And so I, I, I joined the New York City Health Department and I said, oh, uh, public health surveillance, can we use a computer for that? Right. So one of my, my first startup, uh, Jacob, was a, within the New York City Department of Health, where I started, was one of the group of people who started this national idea of why don't we, why don't we track when, when someone gets logged into the emergency room for just for their registering the patient in the emergency room or when an ambulance gets dispatched or when, a, when, when some item in the pharmacy goes beep across the scanner. Like before, all those things were on paper. Now they're all electronic, which means I can get a copy. And if I can get a copy, then I can tell you in real time that something's happening to the health of the city, right? That was, that was like consumed me for, for five, 10 years. And it was really, really cool. It was really, really fun. And that system till today is the system that we use, for example, during COVID to uh -huh. see that what was happening in the city. But then something fundamentally shifted in my life, which was Mike Bloomberg asked the commissioner of health at the time who turned to me, I was like the data guy. And the question he asked was, um, don't worry about the politics. Don't worry about the budget. Don't worry about any of that. Your job is to answer the question. What's the question? And the question was, what's the problem? What's your problem? As you might say, the question was, uh, Hey, how do we save the most lives? Huh. And I was like, can I swear? Oh yeah. Fuck. That was, <laughs> I was like, what am I doing? Like what, why am, what am I doing? Why am I not starting with that question? That is, that is such the right question. How do we save the most lives? And it turned out that no one in like, we're spending three, $4 trillion. We're doing all this activity. Right. And no one was starting from that viewpoint. There were hundreds of thousands of research articles written about various things that we're doing. And no one was saying, what is this, the scientific evidence-based answer to the question, how do we save the most lives? And it turned out in New York City in the year of our Lord, 2002, the answer to that was smoking. The answer to that was, we're going to attack smoking. So that meant that we were going to dedicate more of our living waking hours to how do we reduce smoking in New York City than we do to anything else. And uh, within a time span of four years, we drove, I was a small part of a big effort to drive teen smoking from 14 to 7% in New York City, to drive adult smoking from 22.8% to 16.8%. That saved more lives than anything else we could have possibly done. And then the next question was, okay, that's public health. Uh, that's great. 
that's changing the environment within which people make decisions. Uh, but we you know what? We're spending all this money on healthcare. <laughs> what can healthcare do to save the most lives? Uh huh. Just stay with that question. That's such a clarifying question. That is what, so. That is the. That is my yeah. flaming sword. Right. It's yeah. like. <laughs> yeah. how, how can we save? How can medicine? How can healthcare save the most lives? And again, no one had the answer. So we we published this paper, ran the, ran the analysis. Do you want to take a guess, Jacob, as to what thing in healthcare? If we, you know, we have thousands of evidence-based um, guidelines and protocols and quality measures and like, what is the one thing, and then he phrased the question well, that if you took the performance of the American healthcare system from where it is today to where the best American healthcare institutions can perform would reduce the number of premature deaths by the greatest amount. Do you not have any idea what that would be? Based on my preparation for this interview, I'm going to guess lowering people's blood pressure. Yeah. All right. See, that's not fair because you've been listening. <laughs> I, I did my homework. Is it not you fair did your to homework. do homework? You yeah. did your homework. But the, the funny thing is that if you ask that question of, you know, hospital CEOs. Well, they'll say like getting stroke patients to the hospital 10 minutes faster ask, or something. Yeah. yeah. They'll yeah. say like, let's not kill people in, in the hospital through infections. They'll say, right. Well, because it's not really traditionally a hospital CEO's job to keep people out of the hospital, which is what you want to do if you want people exactly. not to die, right? Exactly. You know? But even if you if you talk to health plan people, that, that they don't know, right? Yeah. They're, they're, if, you, if you look at the number of quality measures that uh, doctors are incentivized and measured against, right? Like there's not a, there's not a 10 X difference between the amount of importance placed on blood pressure control than there is the amount of importance placed on mammograms and colonoscopies and flu vaccines and all that other stuff, right? It's all good stuff. And you're saying the evidence says the efficacy of lowering blood pressure means there should be a 10 X difference 10X. between lowering blood pressure and everything right. else. It's just gigantic and it's, it's just, doable, right? Like and it's the totally science doable. of low, like we know there's cheap cheap, safe drugs. There's life. Exactly. Like we know how to lower people's blood pressure. And, and then that was the, that became my problem, right? It's like, well, why aren't we, why aren't we, why aren't we controlling blood pressure? Uh -huh. And uh -huh. I, I, I came to the wrong answer. Huh. And, and the reason I came to the wrong answer was because I tended to be the kind of person who said, can we use a computer for that? Uh -huh. You saw the computer and, as the, it was the, it was your hammer. So every problem looked yep. like a, a nail that could be hit with the computer. And look, there was some truth to it, right? Like the truth to it was uh, you can't improve blood pressure control if you can't even know what blood pressure control rates are, right? Because you actually couldn't tell what blood pressure control rates were in any given practice, any given population, because the data was trapped in dead wood that there were, you would write it down. You would write down the person's blood pressure control. How would I even know if I'm a doctor, what percent of my patients had their blood pressure control? I literally couldn't with a room full of paper charts answer that question. I, I couldn't have quality improvement. I couldn't have decision support that would prompt me when I'm seeing a patient. Uh, I couldn't have a registry that made a list of the patients yeah, yeah. whose blood pressure so, was out so of control. So it seems reasonable to say, can you use a computer for that, right? As you're framing that problem, yeah, it seems sure. like you could solve it with the computer. Yeah. So then, so then we, and, and we had a, a big concern around, around what was now called health equity. So we went around to the doctors in New York City's poorest neighborhoods in, in Harlem, in the South Bronx, in central Brooklyn, 
Bed-Stuy. And we said, hey, guess what? You've been, medicine has been using paper and pen for thousands of years. Uh, we're going to give you a free electronic health record with all of these functionalities built into it. And we spent the next year and a half building into the EHR, the functionality, electronic health record, the functionality that we thought should exist in, in those electronic health records. And then we, we did that. We, we rolled it out to half of all those primary care docs in New York City's poorest neighborhoods. So mission accomplished. Uh, but, you know, you want to guess what happened to blood pressure control rates? They did not improve. They did not improve. And the number of strokes and the number of heart attacks and the number of kidney failures from that continued just as much. And so that was my continued frustration. You said, what was your frustration? That's my frustration is um, I, I, I didn't feel like, I felt like we'd done all this work. And at the end of the day, the reason we'd done all that work hadn't hadn't been accomplished and i reluctantly you know for 20 years jacob i i like i was a public health guy i was a government person like like i was not a private sector person and in fact i kind of thought that the profit motive was was the problem uh -huh. um in many cases and that's right <laughs> and it's wrong and what i reluctantly came to see is that um the financial incentives are the water we swim in and, and, and that sometimes we can't even see it. Like it's, it, it shapes the, the, the force of everything around us, the gravity that pulls on us or, 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 or not, right? Like everything around us is there's this invisible thing, which is the financial incentives of the system. And I was trying to ignore them. I was trying to pretend like they didn't exist. And in fact, the financial incentives of the healthcare system are to treat strokes. They are not to, no one makes billions of dollars preventing strokes. No one makes, you, you make money waiting until, literally waiting until someone's kidney fails and then there's billions of dollars available to you for treatment of, of like taking someone's blood out of their body, running it through a machine and returning it to them. There's a lot of money in that. Not needing that, there's not a lot of money. And just to be, to be clear, made in doing that. you're talking about strokes and kidney failure because we know that lowering blood pressure, which is relatively cheap to do, lowers the risk of strokes and kidney failure. But you're saying we don't lower blood pressure, and and that happens because that's Literally. the way uh, the money in healthcare flows because. Doctors and hospitals get money for treating for. strokes and kidney failure and not for lowering blood pressure. Yeah. I mean, there's one, uh, one part of the healthcare system that is supposed to be in charge of the controlling the blood pressure, which is primary care, right? It's the primary care part. And guess what part of our healthcare system uh, makes the least money, makes the, you know, has the least prestige in, yeah. in, in where I trained, right? It's, it's, oh, those, those people who, you know, they talk to patients, they don't, they don't, you know, they don't cut the patients, they don't do procedures on them, they don't do expensive scans on them, yeah. right? They sit in a little room and they talk to the patient about why they should take their medicine, right? Yeah. Oh, those, those, those poor, those poor little primary care doctors. We spend 5% of healthcare cost on primary care. 5%. We spend as much on ICUs as we do on primary and care. And even primary care doctors 
traditionally do not get more money when their patients stay healthy, right? And I know primary care exactly. doctors are not motivated by money uh, explicitly, but but still the incentives don't push primary care doctors to reduce their patient's blood pressure, though they, I'm sure they want to. They don't get paid more if they do traditionally. Until... 2012. <laughs> big moment, big narrative moment happening. Big moment. Say yeah. <laughs> healthcare economics cliffhanger. We'll get to that big moment and to how it led Farzad to start his company in just a minute. You probably think it's too soon to join AARP, right? Well, let's take a minute to talk about it. Where do you see yourself in 15 years? More specifically, your career, your health, your social life. What are you doing now to help you get there? There are tons of ways for you to start preparing today for your future with AARP. That dream job you've dreamt about? Sign up for AARP reskilling courses to help make it a reality. How about that active lifestyle you've only spoken about from the couch? AARP has health tips and wellness tools to keep you moving for years to come. But none of these experiences are without making friends along the way. Connect with your community through AARP volunteer events. So it's safe to say it's never too soon to join AARP. They're here to help your money, health, and happiness live as long as you do. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org wisefriend. Okay, 10 seconds. How many things can you name that are always growing? The universe, easy one. Um, my kids, so far, uh, to-do lists. Uh, this month, my sugar snap peas. I know that's not always. I know I'm out of time, but I'm going to give you one more. Businesses on Shopify. <coughs> Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic your AI-powered all-star. There are key moments in every endeavor. I ask pretty much everybody I interview on this show about their key moments, their breakthroughs, their failures, their turnarounds, and Shopify can be there for you at all of your key moments. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com problem. Go to shopify.com problem now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash problem. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Okay, now back to the show to find out what exactly happened in 2012. In 2012, the, the rules for um, accountable care are published by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services that basically says, if you get a group of primary care docs together 
and you gain accountability for the total cost of care for the patients they care for, if those costs come down, we will give you half of that, those savings. And it was like, it was like the heavens had opened up, right? And I was like, oh my God. And I was like, primary care docs don't realize the power they have in this new world. And the only problem, right, was that if you're a if you're an independent small primary care practice, you don't really have the scale to to band together with a hundred other groups to pool your patients to take that actuarial risk to understand the regulations to have the data systems to know what the playbook is to actually reduce costs right and I was like yeah but that that's easy that's the easy stuff you can use Someone's a computer for that to... you can uh, use a computer for that someone's so, gonna I was like. Someone's going to build a business doing this. So I just want to I just want to make sure that we're really clear about what what rules are actually changing here, right? Yeah. So okay, so um, so the traditional way that almost everybody, including Medicare, the uh, federal program uh, that pays for old people's health care, it's probably the most important sort of payer in healthcare in this country, right? Yep. Uh, they pay doctors fee for service. You do your doctor, you do something for a patient, you get money. And so, what's yeah. happening in 2012 is the government is saying Medicare is offering doctors, primary care doctors in particular, a different way to get paid, right? Yes. And they call it accountable care. Like, what exactly does that mean? So, that means that if you submit an application to the government, your primary care doc, you and your friends, submit an application to the government. And the government says, oh, you care for these named human beings, right? You're the primary care doctor for these Medicare beneficiaries. So if you have 10,000 Medicare beneficiaries who are getting primary care from you, the Medicare actuaries, that's their job, they look to see who are, the, who are those people? What have their costs been in the past? How sick are they? And they're gonna say, ah, next year, we think those 10,000 lives are going to cost us $100 million. Now, if the actual costs, once all the claims are submitted and all the costs are counted up, all of the hospitalizations, all the specialist visits, all the medications and scans and everything else that, that gets done to the patient, if that actual cost comes in not at $100 million, which was our budget, but at $90 million, there's $10 million of savings. And we will share those savings with these docs. We will give, say, half of those savings to the docs. So of that $10 million of savings, the government gets to keep $5 million. They spent less. And the docs get $5 million. And you have to prove that you actually improved quality while you reduced cost of care. It's a, it's a fundamental rewriting of the incentive structure of American healthcare. So you see this new thing in the world? And what do you think? I think who's, someone's going to build this business that, that does this. And I went to the, the Brookings Institute where they had done a lot of the foundational work on this idea. And I created a learning network to teach other people how to do it. And we published a toolkit and we had a learning collaborative. And I kept waiting for nine months. I kept waiting for, I was like, literally every morning I'd wake up and I'd be like, where who's who's starting the company to do this? Where where is that company? It's such an obvious idea. I thought to myself, 
it is like, and, and the obvious thing for me was, well, it ain't going to be the hospitals, <laughs> right? The most powerful people in healthcare today are hospitals and health systems under one incentive structure. But getting those people, the incumbents, the ones who are powerful in the current system, the Goliaths, getting them to change their economic model, well, that's never going to happen. <laughs> Whereas you, you go to a, you know, we go to a group of primary care docs, you're like, hey, you got nothing to lose but your chains. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. They, they already don't like the system, right? With primary care docs, exactly. you're starting with people who are disgruntled as a as a general rule. Uh, are appropriately pissed off that the current system doesn't help them take the care of their patients that they believe yeah. their patients should be getting. Yeah. So, okay, every day you're looking for somebody to start this obvious company. Doesn't happen. And so I, I went for a walk with the VC. And <laughs> is that metaphorical and, or literal? Did you actually go literal, for a walk with no, an literal. actual I go venture capitalist? Yeah. Yes, yes, I did. Yes, I did. They got it right away. And they were, you know, they saw the long-term um, opportunity for combining information and incentives in a new way and creating a new business model. And so they like, literally we had one, one pitch meeting after that. And, and they, they, they gave us the money to start the company to, to my co-founder and I, uh, to Govies who had never started a business before. Were there moments as you're getting the company going, as it's growing, when there were things that were harder than you expected, things that didn't work that you thought would work. I mean, is this obvious yeah. idea to you? Yeah. Uh, was it obvious to everybody else? Well, obviously not. <laughs> and, and, and I think the, 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 the biggest thing that didn't make sense to people was the, the going after these um, independent practices, community docs, as opposed to the, the big gleaming health centers. Um, uh, but the thing that really shook us was we, we, we went out and we, we signed up our first um, groups of doctors in, in four states. And uh, it felt just charmed. Everything was magic. And we built our, our software system and we started analyzing the data and we started doing the stuff that we knew was the right things to do for patients. And holy camoly hospitalization rates came down measurably within that first year. 7% reduction. It worked. It worked. Yeah. It worked. And it was like, and it was, you know, a lot of elbow grease and grit and whatever, but just, just turning the focus of these primary care docs on reducing ER visits, reducing hospitalizations was working. And I was like, wow, oh my God, charmed life, right? Like this thing is, this thing is going to work, going to totally take off. And then we got the results from our first year's performance. And sure enough, Total hospitalizations went down by 7%, the biggest source of suffering in American healthcare. Quality went up and costs did not come down. Huh. So it didn't work. It seemed like it was working, but the, the core bottom like line thing, the costs, they didn't come down. And, and we only get paid. Like we had done all this work, burned all this cash, hired all these people, gotten all the hopes of these doctors up, right? And, and, and we, and, and, and these investors, and we told them, Hey, it's working. We're going to get paid and you don't get paid for improving quality or reducing hospitalizations. You get paid if total cost of care comes down. 
And when we looked into it and we actually published a paper, <laughs> we were like, this sucked. Let's tell the world how much pain we're in and what happened. And so what we learned was that the hospitals, when faced with a decrease in utilization, changed their coding. So they got paid more per <laughs> admission. And to, to be clear, change, changing their coding means changing the way they bill. So they're billing yeah. so that they get more. There are fewer more. patients coming to the hospital. They're billing more for each patient. For each patient, yeah. Um, so, okay. So, so far you're not making any money, right? Because you make money by saving money. What, what do you, how do you respond? Well, we had also, in the, in the interim, we had, we had massively expanded. So we, not only were we waiting to see if we were going to get paid, but we went out there and on the success of the vision and the mission and the tools we built and, and the early results we got, we signed up a hundred practices in five new states and we had to make it work. So we went to five states yeah. and, and fortunately in that first year with this new batch, one out of five states, the docs got paid. If the initial problem is that as the doctors you're working with are lowering admission rates to hospitals, hospitals are effectively charging more for each admission. How do you solve that? How do you, how do you fix that? There's only a limit to how much you can play those games. To how much the hospitals can play those games. Yeah. 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 So you, so you just drive down admissions even more. Even more. Yeah. And were you able to do that? Yeah. Yeah. So we're now down 17%. Hospitalizations are down 17% in for our patients compared to what they would be if they were just like everybody else in, in their communities. That's gigantic. So you're saying same kind of patients, you match a you know, big batch of patients, thousands of patients. If they're working with the doctors you work with, they're 17% less likely to be admitted to the hospital? Correct. Is that at all a function of selection bias, the fact that docs who sign up with you already have a lower admission rate among their patients because that's what they're into? I mean, that's such a big effect. It is. And this is compared to uh, themselves. Uh -huh. So it's, it's, it's comparing our practices compared to themselves before compared to non-practices compared to themselves before. Right. So it's the same docs, the same doctors, their patients get admitted to the hospital 17% less often once they sign up with you? Then they yeah. How? How do you do that? I mean, I understand that incentives are powerful. Is it just the money? Yes. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can you use a computer for that? Um, the, <laughs> it's, it's actually creating uh, data to target the, the right people for the right interventions. It's uh, doing the basics better. So the, the, the fundamental thing that we're doing is we're increasing more access to primary care. So we get 34% more visits to primary care doctors for the patients in particular who need it the most. And I just want to, there was a phrase you used in there that I just want to grab yeah. for a sec. And it was not just that it's easier to see the doctor, it's easier to see the doctor for the patients that need it the most. That's like, right. It seems like that's a really important phrase is figuring out who those patients that actually need to see their primary care doctor are, seeing them when they need to be seen. Like that seems hard. Yeah. And that is where the technology uh, comes in. My father-in-law uh, was CEO of a health plan. Um, uh, and before that, he health had started plan, one of the- health, health insurance company. Health insurance company. Yeah. 
And before that, he had started one of the first HMOs in the country. And he said to me, uh, Farzad, how is this different than what we did 50 years ago? And, and I showed him our, our technology and he was like, okay, that's what's different. <laughs> so how does it actually work? So how does it work that a doctor knows what patients they actually need to see or need to be available yeah. for? Yeah. So, so 90% of our practices use our platform, our software platform every day. Uh, yesterday, 90% of our practices were in the tool. And what they do when you log into the tool, the first thing you see is you had three patients who went to the emergency room yesterday. Uh -huh. And we think that within 48 hours, you should call them. And here's, here's the tool that helps you call them. And you can now send them a text message. And just to be clear, like most doctors, when their patient goes to the emergency room, how do they find out? Or do they? <laughs> they, don't. Yeah. they don't. Yeah. They don't. They don't. They don't. Because and, how and, would they, right? It's just like how would the they? doctor is over here in some clinic and then the patient is just driving to the emergency room or whatever, getting driven to the emergency room and they're like separate islands. Exactly. Even when, even when the doctor is part of the same system as the emergency room, there's no system to inform them. There's no system to call the patient. There's no system for that. Why? Because there's no incentive to do that. Yeah. Nobody gets paid more to, if they do that. And now there is. And yeah. now there is, right? Um, so that's that's one of the things you'll see. The other thing you'll see is, you'll see it says, uh, hey, you know what? Uh, here's a list of patients who you haven't seen in a while, who, you know, they, they might need your help. They're pretty, they've got pretty complex conditions or their last blood pressure was pretty high or whatever, right? Here's a list, but you don't need to worry about that. Here's a list of patients for your scheduling person, the front desk person between patients when she's got a few minutes. Uh, she should call these patients and, and make an appointment for them to come back into primary care. Right. So that's the wellness work. Listen, when they come in once a year, like let's have a visit. That's not, that's not based on you reaching out to me because you got something wrong with you. But once a year, let's have a visit where we can just sit and we can talk and we can see how do we keep you healthy? What are the things that are going to be problems for you and prevent them? And you found that it's profitable under this new system to do that. The practices make about 50% more per patient, Medicare patient who's in, in these models, 50% more. And they're, they're like scrapping and begging for like a two or three or 4% rate increase. And they're getting a 50% increase through this model. And is Allidade's business model to take some chunk of the additional Medicare uh, pay basically that the doctors get? Is that the model? That's the model. The model is we only get paid when the practices get rewarded and the government saves money. Are the practices on the hook if their patients wind up costing Medicare more than expected? Great question. So we do start with what's called one-sided models where you, you it's, it's, it's like uh, reward only, um, but then we move pretty quickly to two-sided models and we backstop that risk for the practices. So, so you, you, you take the, you're on the hook and the practice is not on the hook. Correct. So I feel like I get where you came from and where you are now. And I'm curious where you're going next. And in particular, you know, what are the things you're trying to figure out that you haven't yet cracked? We're in this in order to reduce hospitalizations and 
complications and bad stuff happening to patients. And we need to continue. And there's so much every day I see the opportunity that we're leaving behind. Tell me more about that. I mean, and specifically when you talk about seeing opportunities that you're leaving on the table, like what's a specific example of a thing that you look at, you're like, oh my God, we can help people and we're not doing it. What's an example of that? Um, Kidney. Let me talk about kidney. Uh So uh, when someone's kidneys fail, it's a terrible thing, right? Where your blood is no longer being cleaned. There's the, oftentimes it happens unexpectedly and they so-called crash into needing dialysis. They get hospitalized. There's actually a big mortality rate for that when people actually die during that and never get a chance, right? To make it to the next stage. We can predict who's going to crash into dialysis with pretty good accuracy. So because we have all of this information on the patient before upstream of when that happens in the earlier stages of kidney impairment, we can do a really good job using machine learning, AI models of predicting who's going to crash into dialysis. We can steer those patients because we have the primary care relationship with them. We can do a handoff from primary care to a kidney specialists and kidney educators and work with the patients. And what we're seeing is a 24% lower rate of hospitalizations, 24% for patients who got that handoff into the kidney care management program to dialysis. And when that happens, presumably hospitalization goes down, does mortality even go down? People die less if you do this? I, I haven't proven that yet, but I think it does. Well, so are you doing that already? Or is that a thing you think you can do, but that you're not quite doing yet? So we have, a, we have a unit that does these tests, these experiments, and then when they work, we scale them. So the, this is literally hot off the presses. We got the, the results from the pilot. It seems promising, and we're going to scale it. And you can imagine, like, you can imagine that same sort of rinse and repeat, right, for a whole host of other, of, of other things. Of just finding ways to be smarter about figuring out who is about to get really sick, essentially. That's right. Exactly. And intervening either ideally to prevent them from getting really sick or at least to reduce the bad outcomes associated with getting really sick. You got it. We'll be back in a minute with the lightning round. You probably think it's too soon to join AARP, right? Well, let's take a minute to talk about it. Where do you see yourself in 15 years? More specifically, your career, your health, your social life. What are you doing now to help you get there? There are tons of ways for you to start preparing today for your future with AARP. That dream job you've dreamt about? Sign up for AARP reskilling courses to help make it a reality. How about that active lifestyle you've only spoken about from the couch? AARP has health tips and wellness tools to keep you moving for years to come. But none of these experiences are without making friends along the way. Connect with your community through AARP volunteer events. So it's safe to say it's never too soon to join AARP. They're here to help your money, health, and happiness live as long as you do. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash wisefriend. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping 
lower scores, and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. And now a word from the show's sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. The automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal, rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line, and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money is breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Now, back to the show. Okay, let's close with a lightning round. Okay. Um, what you ran health IT uh, for the Obama administration. So what is the least glamorous thing about working in the White House? Um, we had to pay for our own water. Like what? literally. What is, what, yeah. Why? Literally. What? We had a, we had, because the government is, I mean, you really learn frugality. People have no idea. Like in the government, we had a water club and you had to put in 20 bucks for to have the privilege of drinking from you know the filtered water from from the water cooler uh that is what you're that is the the the, the spirit of, of frugality that people don't understand the government agencies have what's one piece of advice you'd give to someone trying to solve a hard problem spend a lot of time asking yourself what's the question what's the what's the heart of the problem um, and I think you should change the name of your podcast to I, I what's the so heart too. of the problem. What do you think I really? should change it to? to? To what's the heart of the problem? Huh. You don't like it. I like, I wonder about the problem framing at all, frankly, as a, as a, as a name for the podcast. Really? I've come to I love it. Do you? I okay. love it. Okay. I love it. I, that's why, that's, that's, that's why I love your podcast. It, I think it's the, the most important thing is to be working on the most important thing. Uh-huh. And and we don't. We don't work on the most important thing. It goes back to that work, question you were talking about at the beginning. How can we save the most lives? That is that's my question, right? That's the that's that that's the problem that I'm trying to solve. But for every every entrepreneur, what's the heart of the problem you're trying to solve and and how can you how can you get to that? And what I found is people don't really don't really ask themselves and iterate enough on, do I have it right? Is that really the heart of the problem? Is that the question? What was the last hike you went on? Oh, uh, I love, I love uh, hiking. And I walk on the Capitol Crescent Trail and the CNO Canal all day. Like some days I'll walk eight hours during the workday with my 
phone and my tablet and my backup battery. Um, so the last hike I did was a, was a long hike on the Cieno Canal towpath. And was it in fact a work day where you just walk in for eight hours and running your company? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a nice move. That's a very strong move. If everything goes well, what problem will you be trying to solve in five years? Hospitals. I think we've, um, we've started where it's easier, where the incentive alignment is easier with independent primary care. And now we're adding on people around that. Uh, but particularly in rural areas, we're going to need to solve the rural hospital problem. And maybe, maybe, maybe we can help flip them to a different model. Farzad Mostashari is the co-founder and CEO of Alidate. Today's show was produced by Edith Russolo, edited by Robert Smith, and engineered by Amanda K. Wong. I'd love to get your suggestions for who else I should talk to for the show. Uh, you can email us at problem at pushkin.fm, or you can find me at Twitter at Jacob Goldstein. I am Jacob Goldstein, and we will be back next week with another episode of What's Your Problem? Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're really choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. How do you create present and future value? As a leading provider of specialized finance operations and technology advisory services for Fortune 500 companies, emerging growth market leaders, and private equity sponsors, cross-country consulting solves today's most pressing challenges and creates present and future enterprise value. With tailored, integrated solutions for accounting, risk, technology-enabled transformation, and transaction solutions, CrossCountry works as a strategic partner and collaborative part of your team. The future-ready business, insight and within reach. Go to crosscountry-consulting.com to learn more. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.